Well, again, good morning. Welcome to One Life Community Church. As I said before, my name is Greg. I'm one of the co-lead pastors here, and it is delightful to see you all this morning. Uh, before I pray, I do want to let you know, um, sometimes, uh, well, all the time, uh, each sermon that, that I put together, Rich puts together, they, they all have their own personalities. Right? They're like songs, and I've heard... Nick Cave talk about writing songs, and some of them are really easy and just come right out, and some of them is like a fight the whole time. Um, this, this sermon for me, uh, it's been like a, like a chicken that you chase around, and it just runs all over the place, but then when you get to it, it like turns into like this 50-foot pterodactyl, and then it like tries to crush you, and so then you run from it, and then you turn around, and you look, and you're like, oh, it's a chicken again. And you run after it, and then it attacks back. Um, and so, uh, but I went up to receive prayer for that this morning, which I would encourage you. If you have anything you need, always go and get prayer, right? It's awesome. And, uh, and, and the, one of the words that was kind of given to me was, if it's a wild chicken, then let it be a wild chicken. Uh, and, and maybe not try to contain it so much. And so, uh, I'm just letting you know that from the start. Uh, that this may be a wild chicken morning. Uh, so, uh, so with that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I give you thanks God, for, your, for your presence with us and for this day, that we could be together with you, that you would speak to us as a gathered community, that you have something for us all to hear, here together. Uh, and so I pray that not just the, the time we spend in your word, but the time we spent singing, the time we've spent hearing about your heart for people all over the planet um, and, and how you are working to reconcile all things, uh, God, in all kinds of ways. I pray that we would be able to discern what it is that you have for us. So Holy Spirit, we invite you uh, to come and be with us, uh, tune our hearts so that we can hear you uh, well. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in week seven of our journey, this sort of exploration through a letter that was written by this guy named Paul. Paul was an apostle of Jesus or someone who was sent by Jesus uh, to be his ambassador to anyone and everyone. Paul traveled around a lot uh, in, in, in kind of living this out. And one of the things he did when he was out and about, he would talk to a lot of people about Jesus. And in some places he would go, he'd get a bunch of people who would start to believe in Jesus. And then he'd plant a church there. He'd start a community uh, in, in these different places. And the one that we're looking at was a, a church that he started in Corinth, right? So we have these letters, First and Second Corinthians. Uh, and then it's because he started these churches in Acts 18, 1 through 7. We read that with the help of this gal named Priscilla and this guy named Aquila uh, and Timothy and Silas, they established this church there. He stays there for a year and a half trying to help get this going. And one of the things we learn is that Corinth uh, like all cities, has its own culture and kind of its own flavor. Corinth was a startup town that Rome uh, started up after it had been basically destroyed. Uh, nothing going on there for a while. And then Rome was like, this is a great place to have a city. It can be really prominent. It can be really thriving. So they poured a bunch of resources into it, dumped their culture in there, lots of other things, and got it going. And so when the city starts like that, you had a lot of people who, uh, from Rome and Greece who had been slaves that uh, were then released from their time of slavery and then started uh, a new life there. Also had lots of immigrants coming into Corinth because it was known as this place. You could start anew. You could have a fresh start here, and lots of people wanted to do that. And so it was kind of built on this idea of upward mobility, lots of people wanting to do that, and it was going well. It was 
really thriving. Uh, but one of the things that happened here was that not only was it thriving, but Corinth had this kind of thing where the people there, they didn't just want to be moving up. They wanted everyone to know they were moving up. So anything that they could outwardly, uh, anything they could get that would outwardly express that, they wanted. So everything from statues being uh, put up that had a really nice plaque saying your name on it or some idea that you started. The number of slaves that you owned was a way that you could show people how wealthy you were, how powerful you were. Uh, there were lots of things that people did, the people you hung out with, the people you were seen with. Those things were all very important because it showed your wealth and your power. Now, one of the things that often happens is when you go and plant a church in a city, you'll find that the people who come and, and make up that church often have some of those same characteristics as the city. And so that's what happened with Corinth. And uh, we can even read in 1 Corinthians that Paul's addressing this issue where the, the church there is kind of hyper-focused on one of the spiritual gifts. And it's this gift of speaking in tongues. And when you think about it, that actually makes a lot of sense. Speaking in tongues is this gift. It's a powerful expression of the Holy Spirit, and it has a very outward aspect to it. And so people can hear it. They can see it. They can know by your actions that you are really spiritual, right? And so this is one of the things that Paul's trying to address that it's not that that gift is bad, but you're kind of using it in a way to try to show something that it's not meant to show. And so Paul is in this relationship with his church, and he's working on resolving lots of issues, everything from idolatry to uh, people sleeping with their moms, uh, all kinds of sexual immorality, and there's, there's all kinds of stuff happening. And Paul's been at this for a while with them. And, and now there's some things about some people attacking his person and his leadership that are coming out in this letter. Now we go through these things each week. We talk about... Here's kind of Paul and who he was, and here's the city of Corinth and who they were. And we do that because uh, we feel that uh, what we call context uh, is super important, especially uh, in the Bible. That, that these words came out of a story, and, and they've helped shape a story. And, and sometimes these words get pulled out of their context. And when that happens, what it does is it can either completely change how they were intended to be read, or it can kind of lessen uh, their impact and their depth. Now, an example of context. Some of you are not college football fans. Okay? And some of you already know what I'm talking about. Context. Right? So, maybe you're not a fan of college football, and maybe you're not, you don't really care about either of our main state schools. University of Washington, Washington State University. And, if I tell you then that both the Huskies and the Cougars lost their football games this weekend. To a lot of you, that's like, oh, well, that's sad. Move along, right? Maybe not even that. If you're not a fan, you don't know that up until this point, both of those teams were undefeated. They were 6-0, and and that that is the first time in history that that has happened. So all of a sudden, you go, oh, that's a little more sad, Right? They were both in the top 10 of the national rankings. And they lost. And it's going to bump them down, especially Wazoo, I think, quite a bit. So, yeah, okay, maybe I care a little bit. There was potential that we were going to have an Apple Cup where both teams were undefeated. And that has never happened either. It's been the first time. So there are all these cool things about this. And so hopefully... Even if you don't care, you might understand why some people do, right? Oh, okay, context matters. If you just saw a headline, 
Huskies lose, Cougars lose, no big deal. But when you start to hear all these other things, you go, oh, actually, it was a bigger deal than that. And so that's why some people are grumpy this morning. <laughs> and that the Seahawks aren't on, and if they were, we don't know how that would go either. So, uh, But last week, a little more context. We saw how Paul was reminding the Corinthians that we are compelled by what he called Christ's love to no longer see anyone in a worldly way. And for that, and for the Corinthians, what that meant is they're no longer to look at people and judge them on their externals. The things that they had been sort of trained to do, the things that this is kind of their DNA, like we're going to judge people on these things. And Paul's saying, nope, instead of celebrating you, instead of elevating yourself, you get to be part of this group called the ambassadors of Christ. And what we do is we go and we elevate other people. We celebrate, we see them above ourselves, and that's what you get to be a part of. It's this ministry of reconciliation. And that that ministry that Jesus had been all about, that God was reconciling all things to himself through Jesus, had been passed on to his followers. A lot in the same way when a runner passes a baton on to the next runner. And so, because the Corinthians are no longer to see anyone in any worldly way, they have this new vision, this new way of seeing people that releases them to go and participate in God's work of reconciling people to himself. Right, it's this great, great, awesome thing. And Paul finished the section we looked at last week by saying it was his relationship with Jesus, his being reconciled to God, that allowed him to not only navigate a huge list of terrible things, some of which are, but not limited to, beatings, imprisonments, riots, sleepless nights, hunger. Uh, He had some good things in there, understanding patience, kindness, the presence of the Holy Spirit, bad and good reports, glory and dishonor. All these things, this huge list, he has a couple of them, and he says, it's because of my relationship with God, being reconciled to God through Jesus, that I'm able not only to navigate those, but to have some kind of joy in the midst of those things. So that gets us caught up to today. Today we're going to be looking at chapter 6, 14 through 7, 16. If you have your Bible, you can follow along there. I'm going to read it. The verses will be up on the screen behind me, so if you don't have your Bible, you can read along there. I do also want you to know, in your bulletin, there's a blank space for you to take notes, draw pictures, write questions, whatever you do to help you uh, stay engaged. So here we go uh, with our passage for this morning. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And as God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I have spoken to you with great frankness. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged. In all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within, but God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. 
He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see yourself, for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we are especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. So in the beginning of this section, Paul goes into this this part about being separate from the world, which is interesting because he also just told us that we have this ministry of reconciliation, that we are ambassadors of Christ, which heavily implies that we should be in some form of contact with the world. How can we be ambassadors without any kind of engagement with those we're supposed to be ambassadors to? So what does Paul mean by this? Well, he has this opening statement. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What does it mean to be yoked? Well, it means to be attached to. In the ancient world, they would often do this with animals. They'd put two animals together. If you had a team of animals that's going to plow your field, right, you, you yoke them together. You attach them together so that they work as a unit, right? They work more as a team. And often, people would put an older, stronger, kind of veteran animal that's done the work before. They would yoke it with a younger uh, and, and often because of younger, it wasn't as strong and it didn't know kind of the way it was supposed to do things. So they'd yoke them together so that the strong one could teach the young one, right? If the young one tried to break off the strong one, get it back in line, right? And it would be trained how to do the work. Now, this is an example of an unequal yoke because one is stronger than the other and can pull the other even if the the younger one pulled as hard as it could the older one would be able to redirect it and so it's an unequal yoke one of the partners in the relationship has a certain level of authority and strength over the other so what Paul is saying here is not don't be attached to unbelievers at all but don't be unequally yoked okay then but does Paul mean like, I, I can't work for someone who's not a Christian? Or is he saying I can't go to school where there's a professor or a teacher who's not a Christian? No. He's saying don't enter into a relationship where someone will be able to pull you off the path of Christ. One of the things you need to know about Corinth is people from all kinds of different backgrounds, all kinds of different ethnicities. They had all kinds of different religious backgrounds. Many of them were polytheistic, so they had lots of gods. And there was a ton of idol worship that happened there. Uh, there's a huge section of 1 Corinthians that, that deals with this. And so it's something that was going on there. Um, 
And again, if you're in a place where outward appearances mean something, to walk into someone's house and see, man, they got a lot of idols around here. Right? That would show something. That would show a certain connection with the spiritual world, the divine that you had maybe more than someone else. And so, uh, again, in 1 Corinthians, there's lots of places about that, uh, chapters 8 through 10, uh, all about that. So it's not surprising that Paul is saying here, you have to have a level of separation from the things that are going to pull you away from the path of following Jesus. And he goes through these questions that show kind of what he's talking about. Um, he says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial, which is another name for Satan? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and the idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And so what Paul is saying uh, don't partner with anyone who's going to pull you into wickedness, darkness, towards Satan, into unbelief, or into idol worship, no matter how challenging this may be. Okay, and so right now, I hope in your mind you're starting to think, right, okay, I don't have anything I'd identify particularly as a religious idol, but what might I have in my life that sometimes draws me away from things that I might need to be focused on, okay? Technology is a huge one, and I could talk all day about it. I just wanted to throw that in there. Uh, but, so Paul also goes into some specific quotes uh, to get this point across. He said, And as God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Now, these uh, quotes are from the Old Testament. Uh, one is from Leviticus 26.12, one is Jeremiah 32.38, and one is Ezekiel 37.27, and there's one from 2 Samuel, right? And so y- these are all Old Testament quotes. Some of them are kind of mashed together. But what's fascinating is that each of these passages has to do with th- these kinds of things. People setting aside other gods or getting rid of idols. Uh, one is them carrying the Lord's vessels out of Babylon after they've been in exile there. There's one about cleansing. There's one about following God and the intended path for good. And uh, the second Samuel one has to do with God being a parent and disciplining his children when they've gone astray. These are not passages just picked at random. Together they all say that in the Messiah, God has fulfilled his many promises. Promises to be with his people, to walk with them. Promises to be a father. Right? And particularly his promise that he's going to bring his people back from exile. But the real exile was not only the exile in Babylon, it was the exile of death itself. And through the Messiah's own death and resurrection, this exile has been undone. And so now it's time for God's people to come home to him. Home from the land of sin and death and home to the Father who will receive them with open arms. Because once we understand what Paul is doing in quoting his Old Testament text, we should be able to understand the appeal of this passage as a whole. Because this is how it works. If you really are the return from exile people, the people for whom sin and death have been defeated, the people whom the living God has embraced as his own, sons and daughters, then you have to look at the world around you. Learn to see it as it really is and take action appropriately. Paul doesn't want them to hide from the world, to live in secret. But he doesn't want them to enter into close partnerships with those who are still living by the old way of life, which I think Paul would say is the way of death. And so in verses 14 through 16, he lines up these contrasts. 
right? You stand for righteousness, light, Jesus the Messiah, faithfulness, and the people of God, and each one of us being the temple of God. Whereas what the world goes after is wickedness, darkness, uh, Belial, this word used for Satan, unfaithfulness and idolatry. So we have to take care when we're engaged with the world that we're not entering into relationships that pull us in certain directions. Again, what does this look like for us? We, again, we may not have idols sitting around our house. We may not uh, <clears throat> be... Uh, one of the things Paul was railing against in, in 1 Corinthians is people still going and participating with temple prostitutes, uh, eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. And so he's going after all these things. And many of us don't have those kinds of things that we're interacting with. But a more modern example uh, is in 1933, Pastor Martin Nymaller preached on the occasion of Martin Luther's Luther's 450th birthday about how tragic it would be if the devil filled German minds with the delusion that what they needed was not the grace of God, but the courage of Martin Luther. Neymar said this. He said, There's absolutely no sense in talking Luther and celebrating his memory in the Protestant church if we do not stop at Luther's image and look at him to whom Luther pointed, to a Jewish rabbi of Nazareth. Of course, he's speaking about a time when Germany was talking about um, Jewish people as being less, right? So the next evening, uh, in uh, this interesting fulfillment of Pastor Neymar's words, 20,000 Christians under the umbrella of the German Evangelical Church, led by bishops and church officials in full regalia, gathered in a new Berlin sports palace. And after fanfare of trumpets and the singing of now thank we all our God, a Berlin pastor, Joachim Hassenfelder, announced that he was implementing the infamous Aryan paragraph in his diocese and that it dismissed all Christian Jews from church office effective immediately. During the event, it was also announced, among other things, that Neimoller was suspended and that the Bible was to be re-examined for its non-German elements and that a proud, heroic Jesus must replace the model of the suffering servant. The speech was constantly interrupted again and again by loud applause. So there are times when the church gets pulled towards things for whatever reasons that aren't the ways of God. This man, Pastor Neimuller, I don't know what happened to him after he was suspended. But he stood for something that he felt like, nope, I gotta, I gotta say this, that this isn't right, that Martin Luther... We don't just need Martin Luther's courage. We need the courage to look and see what Martin Luther was pointing to. A Jewish rabbi. There are all kinds of things that can lead us from Jesus. In the book of Revelation, John warns whoever's reading it that that Rome is indeed a threat. But that we can't go and combat Rome by becoming Rome. We can't go and adopt the tactics that Rome uses because using those tactics takes us off the path of Jesus and onto the path of the very thing that we're fighting against. James Smith, in his book, Desiring the Kingdom, defines worship practices or liturgies, things that are based towards the gods we worship, basically as uh, this. He says, liturgy or worship practices are rituals of ultimate concern that are formative of our identities. They are the things that we do that we cannot live without. And they both reflect what matters to us 
and they also shape what matters to us. When we are worshiping something, we decided at some point that life is only worthy when we have that thing. When we're interacting with something like pornography, we have decided at some point that only if I can have that kind of pleasure is life worthy. It's a form of worship, and that practice informs and shapes who we are. And he says this, The question we bring to culture is not primarily only what does this or that institution say or only what does this or that institution have to say or what is the message being communicated in this film or what ideas or values are contained in this or that policy. Rather, the questions we should be asking are quite different. What vision of human flourishing is implicit in this or that practice? What does the good life look as as embedded in cultural rituals? What sort of person will I become after being immersed in this or that cultural liturgy And what does this practice or liturgy want me to love? So we need to be looking at the world around us in this way. Asking what does this power or principality want me to love? And if it's good, then game on. And if it's death or evil, then we cannot put ourselves in a position where we are allied with those things that would rule us and lead us away from Jesus. Now, for a lot of people, what seems like a difficult transition here, Paul moves into this section where he starts talking about how much he loves the Corinthians. He says, we have wronged no one, we've we've corrupted no one, we've exploited no one. You have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. I've spoken directly with great frankness to you. I take great pride in you. I'm so encouraged. My joy knows no bounds. In all of our troubles, he says, my joy knows no bounds. And he goes into this, for when we were in Macedonia, we had no rest. We were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Not only by his coming, but by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your great sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. And this is amazing, because Paul is hitting on all these notes that he's hit at from the very beginning of this letter. Right, if you've been with us as we've walked through this, Paul's got a couple of long lists about all his trouble, the, the feeling like a death sentence had been put on them, beatings and riots and all these things. And yet, he's overcome these somehow, and he says it's only through God who comforts us, not with just a resting comfort, but with the kind of comfort that enables us to believe and move forward. And that God has done that in all my troubles because somehow my joy knows no bounds, and it's because of you. Because of your care for me. What a strong testimony to the power of how we can impact one another. Have you ever had one of those moments? Granted, in Paul's time, it took a lot longer. Now for us, we send a text, and if we don't hear back in 10 minutes, we get worried. Right? But have you ever had a moment where you're waiting? Right? Maybe you're in a tough situation with someone things aren't going so well and you send a text you leave a phone you know a phone message you sent an email and you're trying to 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 know wow is this even going to work is this relationship going to stay together can it keep going because the way we've been interacting leading up to this point where there's a communication breakdown of some kind has not been very good and now i'm sitting here waiting what are they going to say need to know and then for Paul he talks about when they got into Macedonia it wasn't just that he didn't know that but everything was working against him trouble at every side he says waiting and then the other person gets back to you 
and you discover that they care about you. They're longing to see you. And Paul says that his care for them is so strong that to hear that they have responded well to him releases this joy in him that knows no bounds. Joy that knows no bounds. In this moment, Paul remembers he was worried about them being upset with him. But there's relationship that may have been severed. He remembers having difficult interactions with him and that he had to leave after this painful visit with him that he mentions uh, earlier in the book and he's written them a harsh letter which he mentions in this letter also. And he says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurts you. But only for a while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. I want to talk on this for just a second. Um, I think Paul is doing his own repenting in this section. He doesn't say, oh, my letter didn't hurt you. No, he says, I know. I hurt you. And he says, I did regret it. I did regret it. But now you've come through that, and so my regret has changed, right? It doesn't erase that. He didn't say, I I never regretted it. I was always right in the first place. He says, no, no. This hurts you, and I know that. He says, but now, on the other side of it, look what this has produced. You became sorrowful as God intended, and so we're not harmed in, in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this worldly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on the account of the one who did the wrong nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. He keeps going on. By all this, we are encouraged. He talks about how they took care of Titus really well and their great affection for them. So Paul talks about this godly sorrow. There may be things in life that we encounter that indeed make us sorrowful and sad and that God can use those things as we're moved to respond out of our sadness towards life. Because it's not just that the Corinthians got back to Paul. That was important for sure. And not just that they got back to him and that they were responding in a way that indicated that they still cared for him because that was important too. But what really got Paul into this state of boundless joy was that the Corinthians were responding, in responding to Paul, they were responding to Jesus. They were being reconciled to Jesus. They were back on the path. They were living out a life unto Jesus. And that's what gets Paul. We live in a fallen world. And so we will for sure encounter things that bring us into times of deep sorrow. And some of those things are out of our control and some of those things are things that we've brought on ourselves. But the sadness that we encounter can also bring us to God. There are two men uh, that we hear about in the Gospels that were followers of Jesus. They were disciples, two of his closest friends. One, this guy named Peter, and one, this guy named Judas. Both of them entered into a time where they betrayed Jesus. Judas is the one who told the high priest, they gave him some money, and he said, oh yeah, Jesus is there. If you want to go get him, 
I'll signal you where he's at. I'll go give him a kiss. That's the guy you want. And it led to Jesus being arrested and eventually crucified. Peter, while Jesus was being crucified, and Jesus even told him, hey, you're going you're gonna to betray me three times. Peter was like, no way, you're crazy. And so while Jesus is on the cross, uh, some people asked Peter, hey, don't you know that guy? And he's like, oh, no, I don't know what you're talking about. And even a little child comes up and says, I'm pretty sure you're with them. And he's like, what are you talking about? No way. I tell you, I have nothing to do with him. And Jesus said this was going to happen before the rooster crowed three times. So the rooster crows, Peter hears it and weeps bitterly. Both he and Judas have these moments where they're weeping bitterly. Peter somehow runs back to Jesus. The accounts of Peter after Jesus is resurrected, he's doing a lot of running or swimming. Right? There's one where he jumps out of a boat that's 100 yards from the shore, and he's like, it's Jesus, and he jumps in and just swims to the shore. Right? Okay. Or he runs back to see the, the Mary and, the, and some of the other gals come back and say, hey, the tomb's empty. Peter runs there. Right? He's eager to get back to Jesus. There's something about, I've got to get to God. I've got to get to Jesus. He, I don't know how, but he can do something. Judas in despair creates a greater distance between him and Jesus. Even as Judas uh, approaches Jesus to give him the kiss, Jesus says, friend, do what you need to do. Still calls him friend. Still invites him, uh, even though he knows what's going to happen. So in an act of despair, Judas takes his own life. Sadness in our world, which you can't really measure someone else's sadness, right? Um, uh, you can't tell someone how much pain they're feeling. You, you shouldn't really say to someone, well, it doesn't really hurt. Um, there's an opportunity for people to either return to God in their sadness or to keep moving away. Paul's very aware of this, and he says, I'm going to live and die with you. I love you so much. I'm going to stay with you through all this. And so although they seem separate, I think Paul would say, these, these kind of two sections we looked at today, that in our lives there are times when we'll be lured off the path of Jesus. And we need to stay away from partnering with, with powers that are going to try to pull us that way. And we need to stay the course, stay the path. And that the reality is that, that on and off of that path we're going to encounter sadness. But reconciliation with God and with each other can bring us great joy. Joy that knows no bounds. So these relationships that we have matter a ton. Every day, I feel like creation is groaning to be reconciled to God. Every day. I go on Facebook. I hear friends of mine talking. People saying things that I never heard people saying to one another before. We are tearing each other apart every single day. And in the name of Christ, that is from the pit of hell, I'm going to tell you that kind of behavior is not what we do. It's not that we can't challenge each other. It's not that we can't walk up to someone and say, I don't think that's the way you should be doing this. But the way we are communicating that right now communicates that not only do I not agree with what you're saying, but I care nothing about you. 
And I'm reading through this letter and I'm seeing Paul who's like, man, we have caused each other a lot of pain, but I will live and die with you. And we can't see each other in the worldly way anymore. We've got to see each other differently. Paul's repenting. Corinthians are repenting. Things are changing. So I challenge us, church, One Life Community Church, people who are here visiting, may not be part of our church, but you're here today, so you're hearing this. Let's not look at anyone in a worldly way. Because Paul early on said, you know what I want? I want at the end of all this, at the, and when Jesus comes back, I want to be standing here and you standing there and me be like, Jesus, did you see all the stuff they did? They're awesome. He wants to boast about them and them about him. I want to boast about all of you, and I hope you want to boast about me to Jesus about how much we loved each other. And that, I think, is the new eyes that our world needs for each other. I just want to ask, do you see your neighbors as people you want to boast about? Do you go on Facebook and say, you know what, you who just made that comment towards me that I know you wouldn't say to me if we're sitting across the table from each other, but we did, um, do you want to boast about them? Or do you want to tear them down? Regardless of which political leaders you might think I'm talking about, you can insert whichever one you hate, Um, do you want to boast about that person? Do you want to see the best for that person? Do you want to elevate them above yourself and care for them? Because I tell you, that is the power of God in this world, and I know it doesn't seem like it, but I think too often as the church right now, we are giving ourselves to other things and saying, no, I don't any longer believe that love can do this because it sounds really cheesy and it's too small and it doesn't work, but God is saying, that is my power in this world, the power of reconciliation, not these other things that are actually luring you off the path. I have a couple of questions. I, I, they didn't get on there, but I'll just ask them. Uh, you have some uh, worship team and prayer team. You can come up. Um, you have some space in your bulletin to, to write some things down. Uh, so uh, I'll just ask these questions, and if you can jot them down quickly. The worship team, after I'm done, I'm going to pray. The worship team is going to play for a minute or two and give you some time to think and reflect and maybe write some answers to these questions. When they start singing, that's your invitation to begin singing if you're ready. If you need more time to, to, to write, please keep writing. First question. What forces in our world today do you feel pulling you off the path of following Jesus? Could be anything. Could be money. Could be politics. Could be your cell phone. Could be whatever. Okay, what forces in our world? And so, identify, maybe... Here's a better way to think about it. You can identify an object, but maybe there's something else behind that object that is actually the thing. Like I might say my cell phone, but then that's not quite getting at it. There's something about my cell phone that's, that's doing those things. So, so try to think through that. Secondly, how do you deal with those? Uh, and are you in any relationships or situations that give those forces power over you? Um, so are you unequally yoking yourself to, to something uh, and lots of times it's someone, there might be a person that somehow, uh, and, and again, it's not that we don't want to care for everyone, but I've got to tell you, there are just some people in this world 
that, that set us up for bad times. And, and you can help them by maybe finding someone else to come alongside with you and care for this person. Uh, but, but maybe think about that. Uh, and last, what would it look like for you to see people who are causing you sorrow through the new eyes of wanting to boast in Christ about them? Okay, I'm going to pray. Worship team will play and then we can continue on. Heavenly Father, I confess to you that I don't always have eyes to boast about the people around me. So I ask that you'd help me and anyone else who, who, who echoes that prayer in their hearts, that, that confession, you would help us. Help us have eyes that can see differently. We need prophetic eyes. Eyes that can see beyond the externals. That we can know when it's the time, you know what, actually I need to, I need to back up a little bit because I'm unequally yoked here. I, I'm, I'm in a dangerous space. I need some help. I need some other people to come in with me maybe and help out. Maybe I need to get out. So give us discernment to see that. But also, give us eyes to see the people that, that maybe we hate. To see them in a new way. God, because I, I do. Lord, I feel like every day now, I feel like I hear all of creation just groaning in pain. Being torn apart. We're being torn apart. So God... I ask for reconciliation to you and through that reconciliation of mankind, of humanity. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.